0: Well, if you are new here with us, we are in uh, the middle of an Easter series. Uh, we're working our way through uh, the Gospel of John, just uh, chapter 18 and then 19. And we're focusing on the interaction between Jesus and Pilate uh, as Jesus is going through the trials that are leading up to the, the crucifixion. Uh, this, this week, we're just really taking a snippet, kind of, kind of almost a verse and a half, not even two verses uh, 37 and part of uh, 38. And this is sort of a a part two from last week. Uh, Last week, Pilate began examining Jesus directly, began asking him questions. Uh, The Jewish leaders had accused him of a whole bunch of things. Uh, But the thing that Pilate grabbed onto was this idea that Jesus may be a king. And and as a king, may be a threat to Rome. And so his first question, uh, we saw this in verse 33, was uh, quite sort of direct. Are you the king of the Jews? Is, Is what he said. And last week, we saw Jesus' response. Uh, It was all about the nature of his kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. Uh, He said in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. He was trying to make clear that, yes, I'm a king. Yes, there's a kingdom, but it's different than you you think. I'm not trying to raise up an army. I'm not trying to conquer Rome. But that did not satisfy Pilate. In fact, uh, it actually piqued his kind of curiosity, maybe alarm bells even more because Jesus is basically saying, I do have a kingdom. And so the very first part of our verse, uh, verses today is, is this question. Here's the first part. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. He heard Jesus talk about all this, you know, my kingdom's different, but the thing that he focused on, wait, wait, so, so you are a king then, yes? The next thing we hear from Jesus is interesting. In legal terms, Uh, it's, it's called, I think, if I understand this correctly, a plea of confession, uh, which basically is when you admit to doing something, but then you introduce new evidence to say why you shouldn't be guilty. So yes, your honor, I did, uh, render that man unconscious. I hit him with my fists, with my judo skills. Uh, but I'm not guilty of assault, here's the other part, because he was in my home in the middle of the night stealing my stuff and he had a knife, he was coming at me. So yes, I did this, but I'm, I'm not guilty because of the, of the context, because of the, the situation. That's, that's what Jesus is going to do here. He's gonna say, yes, I'm a king, but I, I'm not a king in the way you think that I am a king. I'm a king over much deeper, bigger things than just like armies in this world. So here's the rest of our, our passage, Uh, Verse 37, Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Which is such a great line. I've always just been fascinated by that response from Pilate. uh, Because it really makes clear that there's a couple different things going on here. On one level, this is, this is a very tense legal proceeding with a lot riding. For everyone involved, there's a lot riding on this. But there is also this deeper layer of kind of a, a philosophical conversation about much deeper things, apparently, about the nature of truth itself, which which actually should not be totally surprising for us that that the deeper you know, subject of truth and uh, a legal proceeding would be would be sort of happening at the same time because that's really what courtrooms are all about, to try to find the truth. That's why we like watching them because it's, it's kind of this pursuit of truth that's compelling, exciting to find out what actually is. You know, is this person guilty? Are they not guilty? We love watching, I mean, there's so many TV shows, courtroom dramas. I'm not sure about you, but the movie that comes to my mind when I think about courtroom drama and the truth is, of course, this movie, a few good men, right? You know this scene, right? It's about—I remember what it's about. There's a military. Someone dies on a military base, uh, but the climax of the scene is between the prosecutor, Tom Cruise, and this grizzled general, uh, who is our colonel, who is a Jack Nicholson, and they get to this climax when he's cross-examining him, and just. I did a bird research. I watched the movie three or four times this week just to get it my, clear my mind. And I took some screenshots. You remember when Tom Cruise, right, what does he say? He says, you want answers? He says, I want the truth. Oh, look at Tom. He's such a good actor. Look at that passion. And then Jack Nicholson responds, right, I want the truth. Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. Oh, it's so good. It's like, gives me shivers. You have to t- take the pictures off because we can't concentrate on the Word of God with them up there. So that, that is what the whole judicial system is based on, right? The idea that you can actually arrive at the truth. Experts, witnesses, evidence, and in fact, that's what's going on right here with Jesus. This whole, our court system is actually based largely on the Roman legal system, in the ancient world, I didn't know this, but apparently they, they considered that uh, from Judea, from the, the Jewish people, uh, they gave the world religion. The Greeks gave the world letters and Rome gave the world law. So a lot of our legal system is based on this. This is what Pilate is, is trying to do to find the truth about the situation. Is, is Jesus a king? Is he not? Is he a threat to Rome? Is he not? Is he guilty or innocent? But Jesus takes the whole discussion... Beyond or sort of beneath the surface layer of is he guilty, that sort of truth, to a deeper sense of truth. He, he talks about these, these realities about himself that, that are much more philosophical. And we notice that Pilate, when this starts to happen, he immediately cut thing, cuts things off and he walks out of the room, right? Jesus says, you know, I'm, I'm reigning over truth, I'm king, I've come to bear witness to the truth. Pilate says, what is truth? And he, and he leaves, which actually gives us, I think, a pretty good example of how the world tends to deal with truth. We have in this scene kind of two different attitudes toward the the deeper sense of of truth. And so that's how I want to attack this. I want to look at it from from Pilate's point of view and then Jesus' point of view. So first question, what is Pilate saying about truth here? On one level, you might say, you know, he only says three words. He, He can't be saying that much. In fact, the words that he says, they seem to be kind of an offhand comment or or a joke. Uh, He's very dismissive. And uh, in fact, um, Francis Bacon, he's this philosopher, he has this uh, famous essay about truth. And here here are his uh, first lines. He says this, What is truth, said jesting Pilate, and would not stay for an answer? And that is kind of what it seems to be happening, right? Pilate isn't really interested in talking about truth. He kind of just dismisses it, doesn't really want to listen to it. So you might say, why, are we, why would we talk about that if even for Pilate, this is just sort of an offhand comment? And I would say it's worth uh, thinking about because even if this is just a joke, it still tells us something about the way that human beings respond to the idea of, of deep, ultimate, absolute truth. Whereas Jesus... Right? He's clearly speaking about uh, genuine truth in a genuine way. Pilate uh, clearly seems to doubt that truth even exists. And it's worth asking the question, why would that be? How is it that, that Pilate is so dismissive of, of truth in this way? And it really comes down to a cynicism that existed at the time about things like truth because of the Greek philosophers at the time. Now for us today, philosophy is not very exciting, but back then it was very exciting. Everyone knew all the different philosophers, what they were talking about, the ideas that were uh, being expounded upon, and uh, the Greek philosophers were the best. And the big question that they had been trying to answer for hundreds of years is, how do we know what is true? The, the big question, how to, where, what is truth? What is the origin of truth? So Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they were all wrestling with this. And Plato really came to kind of some of the best solution. And what he, he said is, look, ultimate, ultimate truth is found in the perfect idea of things. This is what you call platonic forms, right? That there is, uh, if there's something that's blue that we can see, it comes from a perfect idea of blueness that's out there, independent of the thing that's blue. A, a dog. There's a perfect idea of a dog. That's a, This is what philosophers think about, talk about now, that seems kind of strange to us, but they were thinking just intellectually, how, how would this come to be? There has to be an origin of the things that we see and that we believe to be true. And so that's the idea, these, these perfect ideas. But of course, the question is, well, where do those ideas come from? And they would say, well, the gods. The gods must have come up with them. That's, that's how, where it came from. But of course, the next question is, well, where did the gods come from? And that's where the wheels began to come off because they didn't know. They, they, they knew, they had this, the right instincts of having to move further and further upward to, to come to this ultimate sense of meaning, this ultimate origin of truth, but they, they could never figure out what it was. And so there was kind of this, uh, this sense of deflation that, that happened upon the philosophers. In fact, uh, they had this sense that truth was concealed and maybe, maybe they would never find it. Uh, James Boyce who is a a biblical scholar, I came across, uh, he quotes Plato as, as saying this. I think this is interesting. He says, Plato, we are told, once turned to that little group of philosophers and students that had gathered around him during the Greek golden age in Athens and said to his followers, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Which is a very interesting comment but you can tell for him at the time, he, he doesn't seem that hopeful. He's like, maybe at some point in the future, someone will come to tell us. But for right now, we, the attitude was, we can't really know what is true. We don't really know for sure. Now, Pilate wasn't Greek, but he knew all of this. And this was kind of the general attitude of the day. Truth, what is truth? I mean, c- come on, we don't, we don't really know. And so, you know, do your best to figure out what is, what is true and kind of hope for the best. And uh, this is, I think, very familiar to us, is it not? That in our day, we've basically not moved must, much past this idea of truth, this attitude towards truth. Uh, we see the root of it in Pilate, but we see the effects of it in our culture to this day. To the many, many problems that exist in our, in our culture. And it's not just... An academic thing, it's not just a philosophical thing. Uh, The denial of absolute truth has real impacts in our society at every level. And so I thought I would give an example, kind of a a charged example, but I think one that is uh, very uh, pressing, and and that is this. How have we as a culture come to the point of, of seeing something like gender as fluid? How does that happen how does it happen that we as a culture have now come to a place where we think it's, it's good and right and true in a sense to give uh, hormone blockers uh, to, to minors who have a sense they want to you know, change their, their gender or we do surgical procedures? I would submit that only happens if at some point in the past we've, we've not just rejected truth but become suspicious of it. You know, where we've, we've come to the place of saying, That's, that can't be right. Everyone has to figure out their own truth for themselves. Now, it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking thing. It is a, a real thing that there are many people, right? Young persons, perhaps in particular, that that feel uncomfortable in their bodies. We live in a, a world that has fallen, that that is going to happen to us. And we as a church, we as a culture, we need to be so compassionate, so understanding for anyone in that situation. But their struggles are not, they're not made better if we give them counsel from an ideology that denies the truth about their situation, that the truth of the matter is that for human beings, ninety-nine point whatever percent of us, there, there are some chromosomal abnormalities where there's challenges with gender, but but by and large, we have been stamped by God with either maleness or, or femaleness. Right? It's it's a binary. It's it's not just on the outside of our bodies; it's stamped on our very cells. That's that's the truth, the reality about who we are as as human beings. And the truth is that sometimes we, we don't feel at home in our body. We feel at odds with our body for a variety of reasons. But the truth is that who we are as persons is, is rooted in how God has designed us, uh, body and soul. A- and that denying these absolute realities is not going to bring more peace uh, to anyone, but especially to young people who maybe haven't even fully developed into into men or women. And I use this example because I think it does make clear how far we've gone in terms of rejecting the truth in our culture. And because it I think makes very clear the hazards, right? The danger of of having this this attitude, this cynical attitude towards truth. And I think we can see some of the origins of it in in Pilate's response. That that we we should understand that this is not a new thing uh, but it is something that is, that is bearing uh, fruit in different ways, in more dramatic, more harmful ways. So if that's the attitude that Pilate has, and that's an attitude that's very familiar in terms of our own, our own culture's attitude towards truth, how does that differ from what Jesus says? So let's look and see what Pilate was responding to. Uh, what is Jesus saying about truth? Well, the main difference is that instead of questioning it, He's actually saying something about it, four things actually. I see at least four things in this one verse that Jesus is saying about truth that's important that we see and that, and that we uh, sort of wrestle with. Uh, so the first is this, truth, according to Jesus, is singular. You can see this in verse 37. He says, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Singular. Uh, according to Jesus, there are not uh, many truths. There's not uh, individual truths. There's not things that are true for you that are not true for me. What's true is true for everyone because it is true. That's the definition of truth. It's, it's one thing. And that actually lines up uh, with what the Greek philosophers were, were thinking, right? They had this sense that there was one ultimate truth. They just, they couldn't find it. They didn't know where it was. Uh, and this brings us to the second thing that Jesus says, Truth can be known. It can actually be known. He says, uh, for this purpose, I was born, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. You only bear witness to something if it's something that someone else can know. Uh, that's the whole idea behind truth. We, you, we talk about it that way. Scientific truth, legal truth. These are truths that people are saying, look, I a scientific hypothesis. I think this is true. And then other people, other scientists examine it. They test it. They run tests to the point that, Everyone in the scientific community says, yeah, I think think this is true. Meaning, I think that it corresponds with reality, with the way things actually are. That's that's what true means. Same thing in in the court of law. People are giving witness, like Jesus is talking about here, bearing witness to the truth. You're giving your, whatever, eyewitness account of what happened. I saw the guy running from the scene with blood on his hands. And in the court, they examine that, give evidence, video, surveillance, whatever it is to come to the place of saying, yes, that is true. It corresponds to reality. It's the way things actually are. That is what Jesus is doing with Pilate. He's giving testimony about himself, but he's saying more than just, look, here's what's true of me as an individual. He's saying for all the kinds of truth, even religious truth, they can be known because they are one. There's one truth, it's singular, and it can be known. There's not, there's not like uh, scientific, legal, you know, factual truth here, and then we jump over to some weird religious experience that's all subjective. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they're one and the same. If it's true, right, it is singular, it holds together, and it can be known. Whether it's physical, metaphysical, religious truth, And of course, the question is then, well, how how can it be known? How can we know this truth? And so the third thing we see from Jesus is that truth must be revealed from above. He says, for this purpose, I was born. For this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So the point here is that Jesus, he came down from heaven and brought the truth with him. Not that there wasn't truth there already, but the idea here that he's making clear is that human beings, we are dependent upon God, that he would reveal the truth to us. That on our own, we would, we would not be able to discern these things. And you even see, I mean, if you think about how we talk about even things like uh, scientific discovery or, or creative enterprises, what's the language we use? We often uh, talk about the language of inspiration. Right? You have a poet waiting for inspiration. You have scientists right, trying, to, trying to make connections. I was reading this article about this uh, professor at MIT who's working on quantum uh, computing. and What he described, what he does all day is he says, I just think about algorithms all day. I walk around and he's just puzzling through trying to wait for something to, to click, to make sense. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for, for inspiration. Where does it come from? Well, for those who don't believe in God, they would would say probably they don't know or from from their mind, perhaps. But look at what Samuel Morse says. Samuel Morse, he's the inventor of the telegraph and Morse code. Uh, He was once seen bowing over his desk and someone came up and said, what are are you doing? He's bowing there. And here's his response. He said, I'm asking God for help. Every time I go into my laboratory, I say, oh God, I am nothing. Give me wisdom. Give me clarity of mind. That's, that's the same thing that I pray when I'm about to write a sermon. That's the same thing that probably many of you pray when you're about to do so many things that, that, that we do, that we're searching for, that we're we're trying to work. We're saying, Lord, I, I need your help. I need for you to give me inspiration, to give me clarity. And all of that is filtered through a brain that God gave us. We're, we're all dependent on someone outside of ourselves. For people who don't have faith, they they would simply say, I'm not sure where it comes from. For the Christian, we would say, we know exactly where it comes from. All truth is, is revealed truth. The spirit of God, the word of God, the son of God, all filtered through the brain that God has given us. What's clear is that on our own, we would be in the dark in so many ways, right? Intellectually, morally, spiritually. But by the grace of God, light has come into the world, and that light was Jesus. And the fourth thing that Jesus says about truth makes this abundantly clear. He says that truth is embodied in him. And I take this from verse, uh, that last part of verse 37. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What's he saying here? At the very least, he's saying the things that I speak are, are true. If you're hearing my voice, you're hearing what is true. But, but I think he's saying more than that. What he's really saying is that the only way to really hear the truth is to hear my voice. He's saying the truth itself is contained within me. And while it might be a little tenuous to say we can, you know, definitively from this verse, there are a lot of other verses where Jesus explains his relationship to the truth. So for example, let's talk about the Bible. The Bible, most people would say, most thinking people would say, look, the Bible is has got truth in it. Even if you're not a, a Christian, most people say, yeah, the Bible's, I mean, it's got wisdom, it's got good moral teaching, lots of good things, true things in there. And Jesus would agree. Uh, John 17, 17, he's praying to his father about his disciples. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That this, this is true. This is a source of truth. It contains truth. But you notice that Jesus, he, also says that the Bible is actually all about Him. On the road to Emmaus, after He's been resurrected, His disciples are walking, talking about everything that happened, looking in the Scriptures, and Jesus comes along with them. And here's what He does in verse 27 of John, uh, Luke 24. He says, "In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself." He's saying, "Yes, this, this is truth, and this is actually all about Me." Same thing with the Spirit of God. Here's how Jesus describes the coming of the Spirit, John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He's saying, yes, the Holy Spirit is the one who's come to reveal all truth to us. And that truth, it's, it's me. He's the one. I'm the one he's pointing to. And finally, in case, you know, we really weren't clear, in John fourteen six, Jesus just tells us, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying, I'm not just speaking the truth. I don't just know the truth. I'm not just a prophet who's a conduit of truth. I, I am the truth. The truth of God's universe is embodied in a person. Which is, a frankly, a very difficult concept to grasp or to be comfortable with. Because we're more comfortable with truth as like an abstract concept or kind of a fragmented concept. Uh, We're much more comfortable with with people having some of the truth, right? Like intellectuals or prophets or priests. Like we go to them, we get some measure of truth. But no one one really imagined or or has the idea that there would be one person that has all of the truth within him. Well, except for Plato. Remember what Plato said? He had, he had this thought, uh, I'll read it to you. It, it may be, he said, that someday there will come forth from God a word, a Logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. And if you look at the beginning of John, that, I'm going to read to you, this is what John says about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, Logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God, that's Jesus. Jesus. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. Without him, not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Again, that's Jesus. He has made him known. Jesus is making very clear. In, in very, just one verse to Pilate, what the rest of the Bible makes abundantly clear, that yes, Jesus is a king, but his kingdom is, is a spiritual kingdom, and his kingship is about revealing the ultimate absolute truth of the universe. And the amazing thing about our scene is that Pilate standing before Jesus does not seem that impressed, frankly. He doesn't even seem that interested. I mean, he has embodied truth standing before him and he makes kind of a joke and he walks out of the room. I mean, that would be like meeting, like like meeting anyone and they're expert in their field. Like imagine meeting Warren Buffett right, billionaire, and, be, and not asking for any investment advice, right, not being even interested, or meeting Albert Einstein and not getting him to help with your physics homework, right, he's right there, talk to him, or Steph Curry walks in the room and you don't get any help with your, your three, three throws, <laughs> Free throws, I can't, it doesn't make sense, like why, this is a very puzzling thing, that pilot, who up to this point, if you look at his, his questions, the way that he's been conducting himself, has actually been doing a very good job, very thorough job of asking the right questions, trying to pursue the truth. But then when he gets to this deeper issue of truth itself, he checks out. He turns away. Why is that? This is is the next question we need to answer. Why does Pilate turn away? Which I think is an important question because with Pilate, we see a couple of turning points for him. Um, At this point... If we look just a little bit beyond our text, it seems like Pilate has come to a decision about Jesus. Next week, we're going to see he turns from Jesus, what is truth, turns, walks out, and then he says to the people there, the Jewish leaders, I find no guilt in him. So he kind of makes a judgment. So for whatever Jesus said, Pilate seems legally speaking, you know what, He's, he's not guilty, he's innocent. But then, by the end of chapter 19, he turns his back on all of that he condemns Jesus to be crucified. He caves into the pressure, the Jewish leaders and the crowds. And, and the big question is why? What happened from he is innocent to now he's got to be crucified? And I think in our text, we actually see the beginning of it. We see the key turn in his, in his mind and his heart because what, is, what does Pilate do? He turns away from Jesus. He stops listening to the voice of Jesus. He does the opposite of what Jesus says. If you were of the truth, you will listen to my voice and Pilate turns away, revealing what I would argue is is a hardness of heart, spiritually speaking, a deafness of ears where, where he's not interested in hearing Jesus anymore and eventually, it's just a matter of time before he rejects Jesus completely because even though he says in a second you know, he's innocent really in his heart. He's not, he's not open to hearing the truth of Christ. And I think this is the essential struggle that all human beings have when it comes to Jesus, right? Will we listen to the truth of his voice or will we turn away and remain in deception and in sin? So I want to take a minute just to think about this, to explore that the the practical realities of the struggle, to try to apply it to us, that this struggle, this, this attitude that we see in Pilate. Because I think a lot of the times we think about issues of truth, we think of it as just an intellectual thing, almost an apologetic thing. We have to try to figure out rationally, logically, philosophically, can, is Jesus true? Is Christian thought true? How do we, that, and that, that's good. We need to do that. But what we see here is that it's more than just an intellectual thing. It's, it's an issue of the heart because there are many people who who believe intellectually certain things that are true about Jesus, but still are are enslaved, are are caught up in the deceit of sin. And that's Pilate. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, This is an example uh, that I heard on a a podcast that I listen to fairly often. Uh, It's called Ask Pastor John. It's from Desiring God. John Piper uh, is a pastor and teacher, and he basically just answers questions that people have they write in Uh, answers them, you know, what would the Bible say, essentially. And this past week, there was a question from a listener who was struggling with sin, sin that he couldn't get out of, sexual sin that he just couldn't get past. And so I'm going to read to you his, this is what he wrote. He said, Dear Pastor John, I've come to a sad point in my life where I am willing to sin without repenting. I've fallen into the sin of having sex outside of marriage of my own selfish wants and desires, this has caused me to seek out sexual pleasure through pornography, through other people in private, though I realize the mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual damage it does to me, and I've seen these effects very clearly in my life, I don't seem to have the will to stop. He goes on, but that's the essence of his question, which, which is a very serious question. It's a question that I think many of us have struggled with at different times in our life. Not just sexual sin, but there's some pattern of sin that we see the effects, but we just can't get free from it. And have come to the point of thinking, I just don't think I ever will. And so the question is, what, what is the problem? What is this man's problem? And you might answer, well, it seems to be a spiritual problem, a moral problem, that this guy has allowed sin to grow and to entangle his life to the point that it's choking out his love for God, his desire to live for him. And that is where uh, John Piper starts. He says that very thing. He, he kind of responds to him. He says, basically, you've allowed yourself to be enslaved in sin. And he asks him, is that really what you want? Do you want to be enslaved to sin? Do you want to be governed by sin? But then he, he points out something else. He says, you know, the word that the Bible uses to describe someone in your situation is the word Deception. He said, the root of the problem really for you is you are allowing yourself to be deceived. I thought that was interesting. He says it's a matter of what's true and what is a lie. He says, he says the reason that this is per, you know, perpetuating in your life is because you are being deceived by lies and you're allowing it to happen. And he points to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, which reads this way. The coming of the lawless one, is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And Piper goes on to say, look, this, this, this is a deception issue. And so what is the deception? That, that's the key here. What, if, if this guy is being deceived by lies, what are the lies? And the lie, as John Piper points out, is that you believe that momentary sexual pleasure is is better for you than actually living a life of obedience to Jesus. And and he says this is obviously not true in the long term, right? There's heaven in the future or hell. There's two very big differences. But even the short term, he says there's a lie that perpetuates in your mind that 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 momentary pleasure, you know that after that you feel days and days of regret, You feel self-loathing. You you, you hate yourself for what you're doing. Even in his question, he said, I've seen the effects, physical, spiritual damage that it's done. And so there's clearly a lie that's being perpetrated and you are believing something that is not actually true. It's not actually true. What your desires, what your mind is thinking that that sexual pleasure will bring about satisfaction, long-term, lasting, even genuine satisfaction. And the other thing he says is that this just doesn't stay at a kind of a lifestyle level, right? This actually gets to the deepest level of salvation. This ends up being a salvation issue because in Second Thessalonians it says, uh, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You would think there it might say they refused to love Jesus and be saved, but it says they refuse to love the truth. Why? Because when you're rejecting the truth, when you're believing the lies of Satan, you're actually rejecting Jesus and his salvation. If that continues on in your life, what it's showing is that you have turned fully away from Christ and everything that he brings, all the hope, all the salvation, all the answers to your sin. And I'm, and I'm saying that this is what we see in Pilate. Even though it's in a very small level, what does Pilate do? He turns away from Christ Why does he do it? Because he's believing a lie. The lie is, I don't need to listen to this guy anymore. I've got it figured out. In my wisdom, in my experience, in whatever it is, I no longer need to listen to this man who claims to be the truth. I've got it figured out. I'm going to go and proclaim my judgment and it's Pilate's downfall. What I'm saying is that we struggle with this all the time, don't we? Are, Are there not many lies that we say to ourselves about our own capacity for wisdom, about our own ability to choose what is good and right, about our own desires being good. I mean, we lie to ourselves all the time because we know what we want to hear. And in, we're, in that deception, we, we can be led astray. The point of it is that Without God's help, we are going to remain in it. See, what Jesus said is that the truth is revealed from on high. And so for us, for those of us who hopefully there's something stirring in our conscience, for those of us who, who are somewhat awake to the struggle within us, we need to heed the words of Jesus. Right? What, what does he say? Those who are of the truth, listen to my voice. Uh, listen doesn't just mean like we hear it. It means We submit. Right To be people of the truth, we need to actually submit to the voice of Jesus. We need to, like Samuel Morse, stop in, in, in our lives and say, Lord, I need your help. I need your help, Holy Spirit, for me to see the truth. There must be lies that I'm not believing, or that I am believing. There must be truth that I'm not believing. Would you help me, Lord? Apart from you, our wisdom, our, our, our self-awareness, it's all gonna be clouded. What Jesus wanted was to bring clarity and to bring hope. And so here's what he says in John eight thirty one. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's saying that the road to freedom, the road to hope, the road to genuine life is to hear my words and abide in them to follow me, to actually ask for for clarity from God and then to turn not away from Jesus, back to him over and over again so that we might have the the power of God at work in us so that unlike this man who's writing this desperate letter that we might not come to a place of despair but that we might see the power of Christ who is going to be crucified and then resurrected and believe if that is possible through this man who is all of truth embodied himself then it's possible for there to be hope in my life. That I am not beholden to the sin, the deception, and all that Satan wants to do. The whole point of why Jesus came is to deliver us from darkness to light. To deliver us from lies to the truth and from death to life. This can and will be a reality in our lives if if we stop. And if we listen to his voice. And in humility, we say, God, bring me clarity. And and please bring me the conviction to respond, not with cynicism, not with despair, but with hope. And so that's my prayer for us this morning, that each one of us, in whatever way that the spirit of God is moving in our our hearts and our minds, that we would take the time to stop and listen and then respond. So let me pray that for us. Lord Jesus, On our own, we are we are very uh, confused people. Our 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 moral sensibilities, our, our spiritual sensibilities, even our intellectual sensibilities, can be so clouded by our own pride, by our own selfish desires, by the the pleasures of this world that seem so compelling and so sweet in the moment. Lord, uh, deception is such an ever-present challenge for us, danger for us, and so I, I pray that that you would help us. Uh, you, you would uh, use this, this text as a warning for us that we would see it as such that, that a man um, with authority and power and, and, and no small measure of wisdom like Pilate could look you in the eyes and turn away from you. That's a chilling thing, Lord Jesus. And I pray it would not be true of us. I pray that, that we would respond to the, the, uh, the, the conscience within us the conviction that we feel, that the sense of churning in our, in our stomach that something isn't right, that we've been turning a blind eye to areas of, of our life and allowing sin to grow, that we've been believing lies. Lord, maybe not even lies of, of sin, things that we're, we're doing that are sinful, but maybe just lies that people have said about us, uh, about our value, about our worth, things that have sort of been perpetuated, Lord. I pray that, that above all, we would want to see things as they truly are. And by that, we mean as you see them, as you say they are. And so would you help us please uh, through the power of your word and your spirit that we might be truly convicted and respond in faith and that we would listen to your voice. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.